Turn to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. Now, you know, there's different ways to do this. And whenever Christmas season rolls around, the difficulty is figuring out which passage to preach on because there's all kinds of texts in the Scriptures, of course, that refer to uh, Christ's incarnation, that when, when God took on flesh, and um, there's, there's other places... Old and New Testament that that uh, that can be opened up. I mean, we've all heard sermons for probably Luke one, Luke two. We're going to look at Luke one and Luke two just a little bit later. But um, we are today going to be looking at Isaiah sixty four because Isaiah sixty four, although it's not specifically a, a a quote unquote Christmas passage, it is in a sense a Christmas passage because the whole gist of the passage is about God coming down. Um, now, when it comes to the celebration of God coming down, here's the thing. Christianity, as we've mentioned so often here before, as we should mention it, Christianity is a supernatural religion. All right. Now, we all say we know that, right? It means that there are things about Christianity that defy natural, the natural mind, natural reason, natural light. And so you look at a few of those things. Creation is one of those things, right? So if you think of the pillars of Christianity, there are a few pillars upon which Christianity stands. Number one, creation from nothing, ex nihilo. Creation, when God speaks into existence, new things actually come about. Now, the reason this is so paradoxical is because God is a spirit, and he does not have a body like man. So one of the foundational principles or, or key points to Christianity is that the immaterial God, who is a spirit, who does not have a body like you and I, who has absolutely no earthly material existence, he has a spiritual existence, he creates a material universe, an earth, a terrestrial ball that we now inhabit that now of course now we're, we have flesh we have senses we have you know there's there's this is not a spirit right this is material stuff so that's a paradox how does an immaterial god who is spirit create a material universe well you see this in hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about okay we believe this on faith not blind faith but we believe this because of who god is okay the other thing another thing of course would be something like the resurrection so now, because of sin, death comes into the world, because we all sin, we all die because of Adam. So now, all of a sudden, you have, in time, you have a person, Jesus Christ, in the middle of history. He goes and he dies, and unlike Lazarus, who was also, Lazarus was resuscitated. He was lifted up. You know, he was dead, and then he was revived, but then he died again. Same thing with the 12-year-old who was raised from the dead. Same thing with the people that Elijah and Elisha both raised from the dead. They, they're revived, they're 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 um, resuscitated, but they die. Okay. Well, Christ comes, and Christ, though he dies, he's raised from the dead, never to die again. That's the resurrection, of course, and that is a paradox. How do you explain that? How do you? How do you? How can you convince somebody that that's actually possible? Well, the, the truth is, is you can't, right? Unless the Holy Spirit is working in that person and causes their minds, their eyes to be opened up. Even the disciples, after they saw Jesus raised from the dead. They're looking at it, and in Matthew 28, it says that some doubted. After they're, they're standing there looking at this guy, and it says some doubted. So we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate us, but these are th this is why Christianity is a supernatural religion. Why these things cannot be accounted for through the natural mind. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like a, you know, does that mean like uh, that we have to somehow not use our reason? 
Well, no, because again, it comes down to who God is, his nature. So this is not a blind faith, but we can see by the fact that God is a God who he says he is, as we'll see in Isaiah 64, that there are certain things that are, though they defy reason, it doesn't mean that they are illogical necessarily because of who God is. Okay, so the resurrection, the creation from nothing, and of course, perhaps, and I would say absolutely the most marvelous paradox, the absolutely most inexplicable paradox about Christianity, the thing that most definitely, even I would say, I would argue, even beyond the two that we just talked about, that defies explanation, is the fact that this same immaterial God, who is everywhere, who knows all things, who is all-powerful, takes on flesh. Now, how is that? Right? That is the, and that's why, you know, by the way, that's why if you're trying to, if someone's like, well, I don't believe that stuff, you know, and you know how sometimes they say, well, argue that stuff without your Bible. And uh, that's like telling the strongest man in the universe to prove he's the strongest man in the universe without his, without using his strength. You can't do it without the word of God. Why? Because God is the one who spoke about these things. We believe it based on his testimony, but it is a paradox. Now, here's what Augustine said back in the fifth century. Augustine of Hippo, and he's, he's showing the paradox here. Man's maker was made man. That he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. Right? Now think of that, the one who rules the galaxy. And even when he's alive, here's the thing, even when Christ is at the breast of Mary, when he's a baby... Who is, who is holding up all things by the word of his power? In Colossians 1, it says Christ is. Even when Christ is on earth, and you say, well, how does that happen? How does that work? I don't know. But Christ has two natures, both God and man. So even as a baby, he's still holding up the entire universe. Now, here's the other thing. Augustine says that the bread of life, Christ, might hunger when he comes to earth, right? The bread of life, the one who supplies the bread is the one who comes to earth and hungers. The one who, the fountain of life, the, the fountain of life, the one who provides all of our needs spiritually and even physically. The fountain of life comes to earth and thirsts. The light of the world sleeps. The way, you know, Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The way becomes tired on his journey. The one who is the way to God is tired. That truth, he is the way, the truth. That truth, now get this, this is a great way to look at it, that truth might be accused of false witness. You know, when Christ is on earth, here is the embodiment of truth itself, logic, wisdom, all the riches in the universe, the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Christ comes to earth, and what do they accuse him of? Of being a false teacher. How can the truth of the world, the, the wisdom of God, be a false teacher? And yet that's what, that's what happens. They accuse him. The teacher is beaten with whips. The, now, the foundation of the universe, the one who holds the cosmos together, when he comes to earth, he's suspended on wood in the cross, on the cross. That strength, capital S, strength, might, might grow weak. That the healer, capital H, healer, might be wounded, and that life might die. Now, that's the great paradox, that the God of the universe, that Christ, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, 
The Son of God, He comes and He dies, that life might die. I am the way, the truth, and the what, He says, the life. Well, how is the life going to die? These are the paradoxes. And if you're saying, I have a hard time with this, of course we're having a hard time with this because these things defy our finite understanding and our finite comprehension, and we believe them based off the testimony of God's Word because God can't lie. So we believe that based on God's Word. And it's faith. Now, in Isaiah 64 today, you're going to see these, these guys talk about faith. It's Isaiah 64, in this passage here, these men and women, I'm sure there's women involved, they say this, this is Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, etc. But here's the thing, okay, the backdrop of this, and then we're going to look at this as far as why this is exactly a Christmas passage Okay, because number one, okay, the, the backdrop is this. Isaiah chapter 60, we're in 64, Isaiah 60 through 66, the entire, that entire section is one long prayer to God for God to come down and rescue these people. All right, this entire section. Now, the reason behind this, and that's why they say, oh, that you would, they're lamenting something, right? Oh, that you would, oh, that you would do this. They're lamenting the fact that in their past, what's going on is the Assyrian Empire, which is at that at that time, I mean, these these this is the most powerful empire that has ever been raised up in the history of civilization at this time. The Assyrian Empire. And you can read about the Assyrians in the Bible. You can read about the Assyrians outside of the Bible. There's extra biblical material about the Assyrians, how powerful these guys are, how how dominant they are. And they're going through there, and the Assyrians have just wiped out the northern kingdom have just ran, run ransacked through the northern kingdom. All right, wiped them out, obliterated them, dragged people off with hooks and with chains, and they're being taken into exile, never to return for the northern kingdom. These guys are never coming back. They're seeing this because the people in Isaiah are living in the southern kingdom. So they recognize they're next. Remember Hezekiah? Remember the, the Assyrian king sends people to go to Hezekiah and says, hey, you're next, man. And Hezekiah is winding his garment, and he's freaking out, and he's pulling his hair out. He's saying, what do we do? That's, that's the backdrop of Isaiah. They're next. They know that they're about to be wiped out by the most powerful empire to ever rise up. Now, so they're lamenting what's going on around them. But here's what's, I think, refreshing. Okay, here's what's refreshing. They recognize, okay, there's disaster, there's confusion, there's calamity all around us, there's darkness everywhere you look, but it's not just external because what you see in this passage, number one, there is a pressure. The pressure of desperate need is making them call out to God. They have a desperate need. They're aware of a desperate need. Now, this is the problem. I mean, look, if you just kind of stop here and say, isn't this the problem today? with, I mean, even us as Christians, but with most people. Okay? The problem is, in our culture, and in our soul, and in our homes, and in our, you know, whoever you are, there's a sense in which, let me ask you this, let me ask it this way. Do you recognize the desperate need that you and I have for God to come down? Okay? Now, when you're in certain circumstances, you recognize it, right? 
When, when life comes at you and you're hit by certain things, then you start crying out. We recognize, okay, we have this desperate, we have this great need. There's this pressure that mounts up upon you. It's overwhelming. It's oppressive. And you feel, you recognize, I have a dire need. So I go to God about it. God, come down. Win the heavens and come down. Okay, They recognize their dire need. And what's so refreshing about this, so in our culture today, everybody's celebrating Christmas. You know, even the pagans and the atheists and the liberals, they celebrate Christmas. Everybody celebrates. You at least have a tree up. I mean, or something. You at least go shopping in the mall or you know, to Walmart or whatever. You at least do things. You go eat at least, right? Even atheists do it. But here's the thing. If you go to people and you say, okay, look, but do you recognize, okay, you can say, do you recognize what the season's all about? You know, and you can go the cliche route. Do you re- I mean, the season, the reason for this season is Jesus taking off flesh. And, uh, and that's true, right? But here's the thing, okay? Let's be honest. When you go to people in your life and in your neighborhoods, and if you're honest about yourself and myself, and we're looking and examining our own selves and our own hearts, okay, do we find in our hearts apathy, indifference? Do we find a certain spiritual sluggishness, a, a, an aridness when we're dry, right? I think we all recognize that at times. We have this. But in general, is that not the case, especially, let's say, in our culture in the West? There's an apathy, there's indifference when it comes to the things of God. And that's because we don't recognize our dire need for God to come down and do something. We don't see the plight that we're in. They see this. Okay? They wait. And that's the beauty of these guys. I mean, this is so refreshing, as I mentioned a thousand times, but let me read for you why this is refreshing now, okay? Number one, they're recognizing something. Why are they in this situation? Because of their sin. That's what they recognize. If you read, let's read through some of this. Look at what they're recognizing. And then we're going to come back and, and, and see something, okay? But look at verse, look at verse five. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, remembers you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, for we sinned. That's why Assyria is coming after them. You know, they're not looking at God and they're saying, God, you know, these Assyrians, they're bullies, they're meanies, they're, they're very powerful. Now they are, they do say that. But they recognize the reason they're coming down, the reason they're breathing down our necks is because we've sinned against you. We're not these helpless victims over here in the middle of their route. We are the cause of this, right? We're the ones that brought, we, we brought this on ourselves. But they say this, they go on to verse 6. Excuse me, look at verse 5, the end of verse 5. We continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have delivered us into the power of our iniquities, our sin. They recognize what's going on. But here's the thing, and this is the point of this entire passage, okay? Because what they're saying when they say, Lord, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, you know what they're they're basing this off of? Because here's the thing, think of it this way, okay? If I honestly evaluate myself and examine myself and recognize Okay, I have sinned against the Lord horrendously. If you sin one time against God, it's a horrendous situation. Because if you remember Adam in the garden, he takes the fruit and he bites into it. That's all he did. And we've done far worse, right? But Adam, I mean, the entire universe is under a curse now because of that one sin. So anytime there's sin, it's a serious thing. Okay, But when you honestly examine yourself, okay, you know what my first instinct is whenever I sin against God? My first instinct is Adam's first instinct. Hide from God. Get away from God. 
Don't, I mean, don't go anywhere near God, because why? We know God is good. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He's a God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. So we hide from God. It's a whole other thing when they're recognizing, okay, you know what? We've sinned against you. They're not doing what Adam did, right? By this point, they've emerged from the tree, and they've gone to God, and they say what? They're like the tax collector who beats his chest. Lord, have mercy on me. I've sinned. I'm undone. Like Isaiah 6, I'm undone. I have sinned against you, the God of the universe, who is a holy God, and the judge of all the universe must judge rightly. I'm in a very bad situation. Okay, But here is what they're basing. Because look, don't you know, if you go to God, you have to go to God. The only thing that would motivate you to go to God is if you actually believe that God can do something about this situation. And that's exactly what you have in verse, look at verse 4. Because all of this, this pressure that they feel because of their sin, this desperate need that they feel, it squeezes them into making them, compelling them to call upon God, not because they deserve being rescued, but because of who God is in His character. Look at verse 4. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him. That's what they're trusting in right here. They're not trusting in, hey, God, look, I know we've sinned, but, man, we've done a lot of good things since that to make up for that. So please, can you come and help us? Because we really deserve this. I mean, look at it. They're saying the opposite. Lord, we have sinned against you. We have, and they even said, even our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. We're unclean. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. We're confessing all of this, Lord, but we're not... So we, we don't deserve this, but you know what we do know? We know that you are a God who comes and acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. And so we're looking to you. Now, here's the thing. Has God ever come down before in the past, meaning in Isaiah 64 when they're saying this, okay, do they have any precedence of God actually coming and delivering his people and helping his people in times of plight and despair? They do, right? And so that also helps. You look at, and that's for us too, thousands of years later. Okay, They're looking at what God has done for his people throughout history, and they recognize this about God. He is a God who delivers his people, even when they don't deserve it. And so what they're looking at, let's, let's go through a few examples, but Sodom and Gomorrah is one. Okay, God comes in, and does God rescue anybody out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Of course he does. He rescues Lot. Right? What about in the Tower of Babel? Now, in the Tower of Babel, he might not rescue anybody that we remember, but we do remember God coming down in judgment and scattering them, and their language is confused. We also have the flood, of course, in Genesis 6. God sees the iniquity, the wickedness of man's heart, but he, of course, spares Noah. So we have these, these occurrences of God coming down and delivering his people, but I'm skipping one. What's the one I'm skipping? The Exodus, the Passover. And that's the one they refer to in chapter 64. If you look at verse 64, verse 1, at the end of verse 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and then they say that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. And here's verse 3, when you did awesome things which we did not expect. That's important. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. When was that? That's Mount Sinai. 
Okay? The people in Egypt, remember, they're in a bad situation in Egypt. They're in slavery in Egypt. And there's reason to believe, I certainly believe that you can pull, you can extract certain things. Remember, there's certain places in the wilderness when Moses has to come back and say, guys, get rid of your idols. Where did they pick that up? Egypt. All right, so they didn't have like a stellar track record here as far as their, their, their worship of Yahweh. So when God comes and delivers them out of slavery in Egypt, he takes them, and what does he do? By grace, out of grace, motivated by grace, he comes and he delivers them out of Egypt, into the promised land eventually. But before that, they stop off in Sinai, and there's this mountain that's quaking. You remember the thunder and the lightning and the storms, and people are terrified to go near the mountain because that's where God is. That's where God's presence is. But people recognize in the days of Isaiah 64, they're looking back and they're saying, God, we need something like that. Unless you rend the heavens and give us something like you did at Mount Sinai, we are finished, we're undone. We have no hope. And what's neat about this, I mean, this is the, this is the glorious thing about, about, I guess, Christmas, about the incarnation, okay? Because what does God do at Sinai? He comes and he rescues, he delivers, he ransoms his people. But does he use means to do that? Does he use individuals, namely Moses, to do that? Of course he does, right? In the times past, God has come and rescued his people. Remember the book of Judges. How often do the people, they stray, they get into trouble, they start worshiping idols, the Philistines come, they, they, they enslave them, and then what does God do? He raises up Samson, he raises up Gideon, he raises up Barak, he raises up, not Barak, he raises up Deborah. Okay? Why? Because his people need to be delivered. In this circumstance, here's, here's what's amazing. They're anticipating God to do something like that again. Okay? They're saying, God, we need someone. We need something like, God, you've got to come in and help us here because we're in this situation. And they have faith that he's going to do it. You see that again in verse 4. They have faith. He who acts, God acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Okay? And they're confessing their sin. They're recognizing their sin. We are under the curse. They're recognizing this. They're recognizing that sin is all around us. Sin is within us. Most importantly, there's a, 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 this is called the great dilemma. There's a great dilemma that we have. God, we've sinned against you, and yet you're holy. What do we do? And they're saying, well, who can unravel this? This is the great dilemma. Who can save them? They even say, who can, and shall we be saved? In verse 5, shall we be saved? The idea here is, no, you don't deserve this. That's the idea. They're saying, God, she, I mean, is it, can, can this happen? That's the great dilemma, right? Now, they're trusting that he can do something, that he will do something. But because of sin, there's a separation now between them and God. They recognize it. Earlier on in Isaiah, I just happened to be reading through that in my um, reading, reading plan this week. Isaiah, earlier on, it talks about how the heavens are shut up and God does not hear their prayers because of their sin. That's the dilemma they're in. Even the prayers that they're offering, the sacrifices that they're offering, God's like, no, no, I'm a holy God. You've gone too far on this. And so at the end, they just throw their hands up. By the time you get to 64, they're saying, okay, we're, we're undone. Like, unless you move, unless you do something. So they're anticipating God to rescue them. They're anticipating God to do something. And they're anticipating God to do something like he did with Moses and with Abraham and with David and Gideon and Deborah. And I mean, you can go on and on. There's a list a mile long as far as deliverers in the Old Testament. 
And they're saying, okay, well, God, you did it then. So God is going to send some man to deliver us. Now, here's the catch. And we all know this. But if you go to Luke chapter 1, here's the catch. Here's the rub. Okay? And this is the glorious thing about Christmas, the incarnation. God does not just send a Moses or a David. David can't. David's not enough here, right? And if, if you were a Jew and you said this 2,000 years ago, like, guys, look, if Abraham was alive, he could not be able to deliver us from our situation right now. They would probably want you stoned for saying that. Now, we live 2,000 years removed, and so it's easier. But think about what we're saying here. Think about what's going on. This is such a dire situation. And I'm talking about your sin. And I'm talking about the curse of sin. And I'm talking about death. I'm not just talking, you know, oh, the Assyrians are coming. The Chinese are coming. Whoever's coming. That's not the problem. The problem is within. The problem is internal. And so when you're talking about what God does, look at chapter 1 of verse 30. Verse 30, chapter 1. Verse 30 of chapter 1. The angel said to her, now this is Gabriel speaking to Mary. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And now you're talking exactly what we read in Isaiah 9 today when we started the service. That's exactly what Isaiah 9 says. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. Now you're starting to see, oh, okay, it's starting to happen. Now it took 500 years but it's beginning to happen, right? Now you have Gabriel coming to Mary saying, okay, Mary, guess who you're going to have in your womb? The one who comes from David, his father David, the throne of his father David, and he will reign, big word, he will reign over the house of Jacob, bigger word, forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Okay? Now, now go on to chapter 2, verse 25. Here's Simeon. Simeon was a man of Jerusalem, a man who was righteous and devout. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. What's that mean? He's looking for this right here. He's looking for God to move. They're still anticipating this. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took Jesus into his arms, blessed God, and said, Now the Lord, now Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, we think of salvation in the sense of sal uh, uh, individual souls, and that's true, right? But salvation is a much broader term in the sense of our deliverer from, 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 our, from our spiritual internal dilemma. And, of course, eventually, as we'll see in Colossians 1, even from the dilemma that we have regarding the curse in the cosmos. But he says this, okay? He will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And so now, and then, of course, in John chapter 1, don't turn there, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. Remember in the Shekinah glory when God would appear in the temple? 
Before that, in the tabernacle, he appeared to the people in the tabernacle. Then they build the temple in Solomon's day, and God appears in the temple in Solomon's day, and his Shekinah glory. That's the same word here. He tabernacles among us. God has appeared, and he's dwelling. He's, he's come to dwell among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And here's, here's, here's the catch. Here's the irony, right? God, th and this is the thing that they don't fathom. Quite Even the disciples, how could you fathom this? Look, they're used to Moses coming. They're used to Abraham coming. They're used to David coming. They're used to God raising up a Gideon. They're used to God doing things, right? Through these ordinary human instruments. They're not anticipating who could. Who could actually anticipate God, Yahweh, coming himself to rescue them? It's almost like, David, step aside. I'm going down there. Abraham, step aside. You're, you're, you know, you, you played a role in this, but guess what? I'm going down there. And that's where, of course, Owen says the angels gasp because they realize that God himself is going to take off flesh and come and do this. Not David. You know, he's not saying, hey, Elijah, you know, I know you've been dead forever, man. You're not doing anything. You just sit around worshiping. Why don't you go down there? He doesn't say that. He says, no, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to do this. And that's the thing that people can't fathom. To this very day, we can't fathom that. To this very day, you go and talk to an unbeliever. Hey, man, do you think that the God of the universe who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, he's everywhere all at once, he's the one that created all things, he's the one keeping everything held together, do you believe that he, 2,000 years ago, took on flesh, this God who sees everything was equipped with eyeballs, the God who hears everything, who knows our heart, was equipped with ears, the God who never gets tired comes to earth and he's having to take naps in the middle of the hour. Do you believe this, that God does this? Of course not. That's ludicrous. And they're looking at the, the, the disciples, right? They're, when Christ is on the boat and he calms the sea, and he calms the waves in the middle of a storm, they're looking, and you remember we covered this in Mark, they're looking around and they're more terrified of this man, Jesus Christ, than they are the storm that almost killed him. Because this is something that the human mind can't fathom. It's, 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 it's too beyond comprehension. But that's the incarnation. So go back to Isaiah 64. It's like, you know, you can imagine. They're saying, God, win the heavens and come down. And God says, okay, you ask for it, I'll do it. I'm going to come down there. And then he actually comes and you're like, whoa, man, <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't actually mean for you, know, like, for you to literally come down here. And that's what he does. Now, check this out. And you see this typified, in a sense, at the Jordan River. Because here's Jesus. He shows up right before his ministry begins, his public ministry. He shows up you know, 30 years later after he's born. He comes. He shows up at the Jordan River. And what happens? The heavens are torn open. The dove, the angel, the, or excuse me, the dove, the Holy Spirit, out of the heavens, the Spirit of God descends upon him. The voice of God comes from the heavens. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Christ goes to the cross. This takes us back to Isaiah 64 where they're saying, and shall we be saved? And they're asking in verse 7, they're saying, you have hidden your face from us. God, you've hidden your face from us, rightfully so, because of our sin. How can God turn his face back to us? You know, that's an, that's a, that's an act of blessing, just like in the benediction. That's God shining his face on you. Remember we say that, right? The Lord, 
he, he blesses people by shining upon them. And so what this is saying is, God, you're blessing because of our sin. Your face no longer shines on us. We no longer have your blessing. How can we receive God's blessing again? Well, this is where you get, when Christ goes to the cross, you even hear of a song. There's a song out there that talks about how God hides his face from Christ. Remember this? The Father turns his face away, I think it is. He turns his face away. How? That's what this is talking about. That when Christ is on the cross, the Father turns his face away, just like it says in Isaiah 64, 7, you have hidden your face from us. Well, how are we to receive your blessing? How are you to pour your, your blessing upon us? It's by Christ when he's on the cross, the Father turns his face away from Christ. Though Christ who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He's bearing our sin. He's the one who's bruised for our sin. He suffers for our sin. And so because of that, the Bible says, so that we, though we're sinful, so that the righteousness of God might robe us, that we would be robed, that we would be counted righteous in the eyes of God. That's how Christ does this. And of course, this is the point, right? That's why God, when he comes down, he doesn't, he doesn't just rescue us from the Roman army. We've seen this in Mark, right? They're anticipating, oh, now that you're here, you're going to rescue us from the Roman army, right? Well, no, it's much bigger than that. We're going to rescue you from your bigger problem, your bigger enemy, namely death, namely sin, namely, you know, you look around and you're saying, okay, well, wait a minute. I still see wars. I still see people dying. I still see sin in the world. And you know what people do? People do this. They look and they say, well, wait a minute. If God is so good, if God, if what God does is so good, why do you still have wars? Why do you still have this, 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 these, these horrible atrocities that take place even today, right? In the Middle East and everywhere else. Why is that happening? And we love to deflect it by looking outside of ourselves and saying, yeah, but if God is so good, what's up with that? And what's the answer? Well, the answer is that kind of stuff happens because of hearts like ours. That's where this stuff happens. It, it originates in our hearts. And so what we need is somebody to come and give us a new heart. And eventually we know, like in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that eventually all of Christ's enemies are to be put beneath his feet. And, and they're in the process of being put beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. Okay? Now, so it's the, it's the whole idea of like already, Christ has already defeated death, and yet he, the, the outworking of his fruit of that cross work is still ongoing, okay? But here's what you have. Colossians 1.20, and through him, what does Christ do? Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All right, it's cosmic restoration. The end of the curse, the end of death, the end of sin, cosmic restoration. The kingdom has begun. And so here's about, here, here's Christmas right here. Look, why is, why is Christmas... I mean, have y'all heard this is a pagan holiday? Have y'all heard this? People say it was pagan, right? I mean, it's, December 25th was like a day when people celebrated, uh, I forget, Osiris or something, you know. And they're like, oh, it's just like a hangover from that. But actually, actually, in the tradition of the church, so the reason December 25th has always been the day when people celebrate the incarnation, God taking on flesh, okay, is because... 2,000 years ago in the Jewish culture, they, they, they taught that everything um, monumental in the history of the world happened on the same day, namely March, what is our March 25th. So they looked at the creation. The creation took place on March 25th. The Passover took place on March 25th. 
The conception of Jesus Christ took place on March 25th. Everything monumental, everything of consequence, the big events, the pillar events, the, the, the catastrophic climatic things of, of the universe, history happens on March 25th. What's for us March 25th? All right? If Jesus is conceived on March 25th, nine months later, you get December 25th, where Christ is actually born. So that's where you get Christmas. But this is the thing. This is the most important event in history. This is when God himself comes to rescue his people. He doesn't just send a Noah. He doesn't just send a David. He comes himself to rescue his people. And then when you go to Isaiah 64, here's the thing about this again. Okay, Do we still today have this need for God to come down? That's the question. Do we still need God to come down? Now, we know that, okay, I'm not, we still have the second coming when Christ will visibly, literally return, right, for his people. But in the meantime, do we, do we still cry out like they do? Now, here's the thing. Remember what is moving them to cry out. Remember what's pressing them. It's, it's, the, it's the pressure of this desperate need that they have that is squeezing them into recognition that, God, I ha- you've got to come down and move on my behalf or else. There's no other hope that we have. So let me ask you this. Do we still feel that squeeze and that pressure and that recognition, that oppression almost, that we must have God or else? And that is where even as Christians, right, there's a sense in which, yes, we can get, we can forget this. This is where, you know, again, at times of crisis and need, we're quick to pray, we're quick to go to the closet, we're quick to do these things, we're quick to cry out. But if we truly understood our condition and our need, there would, there would be absolutely no self-dependency, self-reliance, absolute, like zero in any of us. If we truly grasped the situation, we would have absolutely zero self-reliance, self-dependency. But here's what happens. Okay, so if you look at certain things, like regeneration, look at our children, and you say, man, look, we can catechize our children all day long. We can make sure they're, you know, they're, they're, they're in church, they're, they're doing everything. But guess, guess what? My catechism, catechizing our children does not save our children. Right? doesn't save our children. Making sure they memorize the Bible. They can know it all. It doesn't save our children. So what do we need? We need God to come down and move and save our children. We need God to regenerate their hearts. That's what we need. The people we're talking to about the gospel, we can tell, you know, you can tell a person the gospel a thousand times and they don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it, right? What do they need? God, you have to come down and move on this person or they will not get saved. Our culture is obviously... You talk about this, this darkness and confusion and despair, and we're looking around. What do we need? Well, we need better government. We need better leaders. We need better this. We need better that. We need Yes, we need all of those things, but without God moving and coming down, it's all going to be a generational thing, and then it's going to turn back to the, to the mess it's in. We have to have God come down in our homes. you know, And this is like sanctification in our homes, our marriages. God, unless you move and unless you come down, I'm a selfish person and I will not my wife is not here <laughs> I will not do the dishes but all of a sudden and I'm not kidding you start praying about this stuff and I'm like man I'm like it's like a robot almost I'm walk I find myself walking to the kitchen walking to the sink and I'm and I'm like man what am I doing wow 
That kind of thing, right? But that's the miracle that God works in us, is sanctification in our marriage. Whatever sin, lust, bitterness, trials, you know, you're hit by these trials. And so we still, we still have this desperate plea and need. God, please come down. Please move. I am so far away from being like Jesus Christ, which is the goal. Unless you move on my heart, God, I don't even want to be like Jesus. But then God comes down and he helps us. You know, you talk about revival. If you read through Psalm 119, we've been reading through that. Psalm 119, it's amazing how many times the word revive comes up in Psalm 119. You know, how often are we just dry and sluggish spiritually? We're like, God, man, I don't have any desire to be in your word. I don't have any desire to listen to a sermon today or to listen to something edifying for my soul today. I don't have any desire to do that. But I need to be revived. God, revive me. Help me, God. So we still have this urgent, desperate need in crying out to God for for, for God to come down, rend the heavens in our life, rend the heavens in our marriages, rend the heavens in our children's hearts, rend the heavens and come down in our city, in our, in our nation. Rend the heavens, God. And here's the thing. Do we believe that he will do this? You know what? And that's what it strikes me about these, these people in Isaiah 64. They believe that he will do this. Nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. We know, God, that you're going to do this, and we will wait for 400 years if we have to. But, God, in the meantime, we're going to pray and we're going to cry out, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that's why in verse 4, God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So during Christmas is a glorious time to thank God for coming down in the past, and it's a glorious time to pray and plead with God that he would come down in the present right now. His work is not finished. He defeated death, but we look around, and, and he defeated sin, but we look around and we know that we are in a cesspool. We are surrounded by sin and filth and wickedness and evil. How does that end? By God coming down and moving us to go forth and preach the gospel and share the gospel, and then by God coming down upon what we're preaching and opening people's hearts, etc., and then cultures change and everything else. It all kind of like dominoes. But without God coming down and moving, it's not going to happen. So, let us pray. Our great King, we praise you that you have taken on flesh and you've, you've come to, to save us, that you've come to ransom us, that you've come to deliver us. Lord, what a glorious thing it is to know that this is, this is a work that was, that was too much for David and too much for Abraham, that, that, that only the God of the universe could take on. And we praise you that in this work you were victorious and in this work you continue to uh, supplant your enemies, and to advance your gospel. And yet, Lord, we look around, and not only do we look around, but we look within, and we recognize that this work is, is far from finished, both in us and around us. And so, Lord, uh, we do thank you that you've come down, and we pray that you would continue to work in us. Uh, Lord, help us, revitalize us, Lord, revive us. Pour your Spirit upon us, pour your Spirit upon our homes, upon our children, upon this city, upon this state upon this nation, this world. Lord, what a dire state things are right now, both outwardly and inwardly. Lord, if we, if we investigate even the, the, the corruptions in our own souls and hearts, Lord, and, and, and recognizing, Lord, we should be so much further in the race than we are. And so, Lord, just like these folks in Isaiah 64, we look to you knowing that not, not because we deserve it, but because of who you are, uh, that, you, that you do this great work and this great kindness 
to us and for us, Lord, of coming down and, and working in us and working around us so that your great name is praised and honored. We pray this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke 15. As we come to the table, it's such a, it's, it's a great passage. This is the prodigal son. We're, we're all aware of it.